Father, again we come before you knowing that you are mighty and good. Lord, I pray that you would um, teach me to fear you right now. Teach us all to fear you and to love you, Lord. I ask that you would calm inner turbulence in our hearts, remove whispers of doubt. Lord, we know that in quietness and trust will be our strength. So I ask that you would grant us those things right now as we begin to look into your word. Lord, we ask for this nation as well. Again, we know that you you are victorious, Lord, over the powers, over sin and death. So we pray for our nation, for our governors, for our President Biden, Lord, not just for wisdom simply, but for salvation. I ask, Lord, that you may grant them repentance and to salvation that they may turn from wicked ways and seek your face. Lord, we pray that together we lift our voices right now asking that you would throw abortion into the abyss in this country. Cast it far from us, Lord. May it be a piece of history that's spoken of in hushed tones may become a byword. May it, may it perish and p- ground it into the dust, Lord. So we lift up Beacon of Light right now who we support. Lord, it's, it's our prayer that women would come, find forgiveness in you, and rest in you, and peace in you, knowing that there are better ways and there are good things ahead if they cling to you. And we ask that babies' lives would be saved and they would be raised in the fear and instruction of the Lord, discipled and become good and great men and women who trust you and love you. So we pray for that ministry. We pray for those in the leadership, those on the ground in that ministry and pray that it wouldn't just be a job they do, but you put the gospel on their hearts as well. Lord, we also ask for uh, our world missions, Lord. You said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of every nation. So we ask for Heart Cry Missionary Society as they're supporting indigenous churches I ask that you would strengthen the global church right now, being persecuted and slaughtered in many places, that you would uphold them with a mighty arm, Lord. And if they do go to their death, I ask that you would give them trust, confidence, and assurance at that moment, knowing that they are going to see you. But Lord, we ask for you to strengthen your church, even now, Lord. And as we're here, I ask that you would free my mind up to think clearly, 
and accurately let me feel what I'm preaching. And I pray that we would all be brought into a closer knowledge of you and appreciation for your son and an understanding of what we do and why we do it, Lord. May theology give life today. We ask this in the name of your Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. All right. Well, praise God. We are now um, in the second week of our Holy Week sermon series. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I didn't print my sermon out today because my printer wasn't working. And I told Jeff that, there it is. Anytime an electronic device can malfunction, it will malfunction as soon as you start a sermon. So right now we're good, though. I got a backup running, so praise God. All right. Um, So we are in the middle of the Lord's Supper, and uh, or we're not in the middle of the Lord's Supper. We're in the middle of the Holy Week, rather. And last week we saw that Jesus of Nazareth uh, entered Jerusalem with power. So he he comes in, and the and the women and the children and men are laying palm branches before him, saying Hosanna in the highest. And they're calling out to him for salvation. And so clearly, Jesus Christ is being seen as king and lord. And so he comes into the city and he cleanses the temple. And once he cleanses the temple, people must have thought that Messiah had come. Excuse me one minute. They must have thought that Messiah had come. And great crowds were coming to hear Jesus preach and teach in the temple. So I want you to look at, for for a minute, Luke, um, Luke 19, verse 37. So he not only comes into the temple, and he not only... Um, cleanses the temple, but then people are coming to him, and they're coming to hear his teaching. The great crowds are coming to hear him teach. And it says in verse 37 of Luke 19, it says, And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And so you have this great takeover of Jerusalem, almost. Messiah has come. He's come in. Hosanna in the highest. He's cleansed the temple of evil worship. And then he's finally, he's teaching in the temple. And he's having a hard... The the Pharisees are trying to give him a hard time, but his wisdom is overcoming them. Surely Messiah had come. And what is next? Jesus Christ prepares him, prepares the disciples for his death with a meal. So if you could turn your Bibles and now look to Luke 22, verse verse 7. 
we're going to see how Jesus prepares his disciples for his death with a meal. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink it of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you in the new co- is the new covenant in my blood. So in this passage, Jesus is helping the disciples understand his death through a meal. And he is doing it at Passover. So he says, prepare the Passover. Here's how to understand my death. So when we, when we eat the Lord's Supper, something very significant is being remembered and we're supposed to be reminded of. And it's something very significant that we're doing as citizens of God's kingdom. And that is what we're going to unpack today. Now, the first, the first observation I want to make in this passage is that this meal is taking place at Passover. That's very important to understand. Because Passover is the meal that God gave Israel to eat on the night when he delivered them from Egypt. So do you remember that um, in Exodus 12... In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 12, and I'll I'll read a portion there. In Exodus 12, so Israel has been in captivity in, in Egypt for 400 years at this point. And they're enslaved by the Egyptians. And Jesus, or, and, um, and God the Father is, has sent plagues on Egypt because Moses has said, let my people go to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I will not let your people go. Who is Yahweh? And God with a mighty arm shows Pharaoh that he is in control of the earth and the elements and he turns water into blood. Locusts swarm the earth, cattles die. 
boils rise on people, darkness covers the land, and finally, after Pharaoh's heart was so hardened, finally the Lord said, I'm going to send one last plague, and it will be the death of the firstborn. But he covers and protects his people, and here's how he does it. He says, take a lamb, and I want you to slaughter that lamb and have a meal and wipe the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And starting from Exodus 12, 7, it says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Take a lamb, spotless and without blemish, Kill it. Take the blood of the lamb and wipe it on the doorposts of your house. And then eat the lamb. Roast the lamb. Eat it as a Passover meal. And when I see the blood that night, when the angel of death passes over, it will pass over you. And so this is the meal. This is the meal that became an annual feast for the people, God's people. And every year they would remember the time that God delivered them from Egypt during that time because the angel of death did pass over the people of Israel. And the angel of death did come for Pharaoh's, from Pharaoh, for Pharaoh's house. And he did kill the firstborn of Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians. And so he delivered the Israelites and finally, Pharaoh said, go, go worship your God, send no more plagues here. And Israel from that point on was released from slavery in Egypt as they made their way along an arduous way to the promised land. Nevertheless, it's that meal that marks protection from God's wrath and deliverance from Israel's enemies. Now, that is the redemptive lens through which we need to see the Passover meal. Because it's not just a meal that Jesus talks about detached from Israel's history. No, this is rooted in Israel's history. A history about death passing over God's people and God's people being delivered from evil powers that enslaved them. That's very key. Now, a word, about, a word about assurance, because every time I preach this passage, I need to bring this up, and I know we've brought this up before, perhaps. But 
What is your assurance? That's very important for you to understand what your assurance is. So I want you to picture, and D.A. Carson tells this story too um, very well. Picture two men on the night that the angel of death is about to pass over, the Passover night. And uh, I think, I think D.A. Carson called them Smith and, and John, very Jewish names, Smith and John. So Smith says to John, you know, John, this, what do you think about, uh, about this tonight? I mean, are you, a little, uh, are you a little nervous about the things that are happening? Because unusual things have happened in the past few weeks. If you haven't noticed, water has turned to blood. Darkness was all over the face of the land, except for ours, of course. And, and cattle have died. I don't know what's coming next. But the Lord says the angel of death is supposed to pass over. And John says, well, I'm not nervous. You know, God said, God said to do this, and, and by obedience, I trust Yahweh will deliver us. And Smith says, well, I, I, I'm not a, a fool either. I applied the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. You know, I, I did that. But still, I mean, who knows what God is capable of? Now, Smith had little faith. And John had a lot of faith. Which one was saved that night when the angel of death passed over? Both of them were saved because both of them had applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their house. The point here is that death, quoting Carson, does not pass over them on the grounds of the clarity or intensity of their faith, but on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb covering over them. Very important for you to understand that it is not the amount or intensity of faith that you have. It is the grounds of your salvation is the blood of the Lamb covering your sins. And when God sees the blood, he will pass over you. If you've applied the blood to the doorposts of your heart through faith. So you see that? So faith is something gritty. It clings to what God says. It clings to his promises. In obedience and trust. And it applies the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the heart. Even though there may be doubts. Even though there may be fears. Faith applies the blood of the Lamb in spite of doubt and in spite of fear. Very important to understand that the ground of your faith is the sacrifice that God has provided for you to cover for you. So, with that, Passover is the interpretive lens to understand this passage. Now, in verse 19 through 20, I want you to look down there because Jesus takes that Passover meal commemorating God's faithfulness, God's protection from death, and God's deliverance from slavery. And he imports all of that meaning onto his own death. God takes the Passover, or Jesus takes the Passover meal and redraws its significance around him and his coming death. 
I want you to notice there's no lamb involved in this scene. There is a bread and a cup. And with the bread and the cup, Jesus is taking the focus off the lamb and putting it on himself. He is redirecting their minds to think not of the lamb, but of his own body and blood. Verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. A broken body given. Blood poured out. The body given that is broken reminds me so much, and I just finished reading this in my daily Bible reading, is Isaiah 52 and 53. He was marred beyond recognition, and yet we esteemed him smitten of God. We thought he was cursed, and in a sense he was. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus says, this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And the new covenant is Jeremiah 31 and a few other passages sprinkled throughout the, new, the Old Testament, which promise forgiveness of sins and the Spirit of God coming on his people. Because what's different about you, Christian, and you know this, what's different about you is that you're not left to your own devices. But as soon as you place faith in Jesus Christ, true and saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came down and resided in you as God's temple and is making you holy. And he is a helper. You have not been left alone. He is the helper. And he has come to come alongside you. And you will trip and you will fall and he will pick you back up. And he will keep you going down a good and straight and right path. So his body was given for you. His blood poured out for you marks a new covenant where you're not on your own to follow God. But you're not only forgiven, but empowered to do so through the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus uses the bread and the cup and imports the significance of Passover onto his own body through those elements. Remember Passover, deliverance and protection from death. That onto Christ, from the lamb onto the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ then is the new lamb that has covered us from the penalty of eternal death. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. God did the sacrificing. 
the Passover lamb, Christ, has been slaughtered for us. By his wounds, we have been healed. And when he sees the blood on you, listen, do you doubt the truth of the Bible? Do you doubt if you can be forgiven for what you've done? Do you doubt the resurrection of Christ? The blood of Christ is stronger than that. You need to cling to Christ in spite of those doubts and fears. Now, I, don't, I personally don't shy away from hard questions like that. And I'm looking forward to Sunday schools and Bible studies where I'm going to teach you things that hopefully blow you away. So you can say, wow, Jesus really rose from the dead. And there's historical evidence for that. Or say, wow, the Bible isn't just a collection of manuscripts that was corrupted. Listen, trust me, I know, I know the arguments, the deep-rooted arguments against the Bible and the historicity of the resurrection. I know it all. I've come to a place where I'm very confident in Christ. But here's a, it's, it's a, if you have doubts, cling to Christ anyhow. If you have fears, cling to him anyhow. Apply the blood on your heart daily. And when he sees the blood, despite your doubts, despite your fears, despite your insecurities, he will pass over you. That's the promise. Secondly, God's people have entered a new exodus through Jesus Christ. But it's not, it's not an exodus from Egypt. It's an exodus from spiritual Egypt. This, the slavery of sin and death. Specifically sin. Again, we've talked about this a lot because we're going through Romans. But you not only have the power of the Holy Spirit, you're free from sin through Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're no longer a slave to sin. And so Paul says in Romans 6, 17 through 18, which Patrick preached on a few months ago, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart of the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So you went from the owner to being owned by spiritual Egypt, which you were in bondage to your desires, your base instincts. You've been set free from that to actually serve with your whole heart the living God who wants the best for you, including your eternal salvation. And praise God for that. So you're no longer a slave you're a free man enslaved to God through Christ. So in Christ, the sting of death is gone and the power of sin has been broken in your life. Claim that and cling to that. Now, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper as a practice. When he says, do this 
in remembrance of me. So this is not just a one-off supper. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we have the early church in Acts 42 devoting themselves to the fellowship, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper, and we also see in Acts 20, verse 7, that they came together for the breaking of bread on the first day of the week. And so the first day of the week, God's people will come together to share this meal to remember their exodus from sin and death. Paul, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You've proclaimed the Lord's death, and we've all seen it. And next time we do the Lord's Supper, I want you to look around at brothers and sisters proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. Because we know he's risen, and we know he's ascended to the right hand of power, and we know he's coming again. And so we can confidently claim the Lord's death until he comes. Pause for a second here, and let me just talk about a a theological debate that's been raging for, oh, 1,500 years, maybe, especially for the past 500 years. Um, Many many are going to call the Lord's Supper a sacrament. So I just want to teach you the difference between a sacrament and an ordinance. A sacrament is the belief that when you take the Lord's Supper, you are being infused with grace because you're actually taking the body and blood of Christ into you. So sacramentalism usually is compared with transubstantiation or consubstantiation, which is the idea that somehow Christ's body is either identical to or somehow present in the elements. I don't see that in the Bible. And so I don't believe that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. What I do believe is that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance. And an ordinance is simply a practice that has been ordained by God. And so, this is a practice that has been ordained by God. And when we take it, we don't believe in this church that we are being infused with grace. We don't take it to be infused with grace. We take it to express allegiance to the king. So that is the difference between a sacrament and an ordinance. A sacrament is a belief that grace is infused into you, An ordinance is a practice ordained by God, which swears your allegiance to him. Nevertheless, 
Nevertheless, I don't want to say that there's not anything significant happening. Don't forget we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. But even in the act of eating, which is kind of a vulgar thing to do in church, right? I mean, we're, we're chomping down together, we're drinking. I always felt kind of weird about that. I don't know about you. It's kind of strange, right? I mean, what do we do? We're all you hear each other chewing. I think the very act of eating is significant for God's people. Because think back I don't want to mention the amount of years because there could be a lot. (laughs) But think back to the beginning. Think back to the very beginning. What happened? What was the act by which the world was thrown into utter decay? What did man, what was the actual physical act that threw the world into decay? Jeff had eating. Eve took the fruit and she ate the fruit. I think personally that the Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Supper, Christ's people are redeeming that very act, looking all the way back to the beginning. And rather than it being an act which expressed defiance of the Lord, It now expresses allegiance to the Lord, knowing that he has covered that very sin and that he is coming again to make it all right. And so the very act of eating, we are trusting that the Lord has redeemed what Adam and Eve unraveled at the beginning. So lift the cup and and crunch down on that because It's the act of eating that God has redeemed in the Lord's Supper. And I I do, we do in defiance though. But it's not in defiance of God, it's in defiance of the world. Because the accuser stands day and night accusing the saints. And the accuser manifests himself and powers and principalities in this world. Am I right? And people will look at Christians, and people have looked at Christians from the beginning, taking the Lord's Supper and mock them for their simple, silly faith. But when John saw the vision of a great banquet called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, He said, blessed are those who have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed is the bride of Christ. And he says of the God's people that they have conquered the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So we eat in defiance of something, but it's not God. We eat in allegiance of the, of the Lord, but in defiance of the world. I love this. There, there, there's that song, too. Um, I forget who did this. Some hip-hop artist, some artist says, and the song says, raise, raise your glass if you're wrong in all the right ways. And she's talking about underdogs, and she's talking about all of the, 
the people that a Christian would disagree with, really. And I say, well, that sounds almost like a Christian song during the Lord's Supper. Because for thousands of years, Christians have been wrong in all the right ways. We've been seen as fools. We've been seen as improper, inappropriate, as too hard, as too soft, as uncaring, as too caring, as people that cling to someone's death, as people that cling to someone's resurrection. So we do eat in defiance. We eat in defiance of a world who does not accept our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we know that he is coming again, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Sometimes you need to take a hard stance against the world. And, and very often, very often, you need to take a loving, gentle, and calm stance with the world. So uh, I don't want to be a in-your-face kind of guy all the time, but I do want to be that guy sometimes. Because the church is starting to be accused again constantly. From both sides, I'm not talking any one side, both sides. So in the Lord's Supper, lastly, in the Lord's Supper, we're looking in two directions. I want you to have bifocals on when you take the Lord's Supper. I want you to look back and I want you to look forward in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, obviously, we're looking back at Christ's death. Uh, One commentator says, so the Lord's Supper is both a proclamation and a remembrance, a a memorial of what God the Father has done in his Son, Jesus Christ, just as the Passover was the proclamation and remembrance of what Yahweh did through Israel through the slaughter of the lambs in Egypt. Covering from death, deliverance from powers. That's what we remember. And we remember that the blood of Christ achieved that for us in the Lord's Supper. That's looking back. Now, looking forward. Here's why I want you to look forward. Because when you've taken the Lord's Supper, I, I trust that you have never entered into a euphoric state where you feel like you're in heaven. Right? It, it's almost like, we're, so we're chomping, we're doing, we're eating this thing. And, and you know something's holy going on, but you don't really feel that entirely. You, you, know, you know you should kind of, or you want to feel something going on. You want to feel something holy, but you don't. That's okay. That's okay. Because what we're doing is we're eating in obedience and remembrance, and we're looking forward. And Paul says we do this until he comes. So here's, um, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, James K.A. Smith, a very good book, by the way, um, about spiritual disciplines, basically, um, and integrating them into a rule of life. James K.A. Smith puts it this way. He says, there's a certain sense in which the celebration of the Lord's Supper should be experienced as a kind of sanctified letdown. 
For every week that we celebrate the Lord's Supper is another week that the kingdom and its feast have not yet fully arrived. And every week, the words of the institution remind us of this fact, for we do it until he comes. So when you eat the Lord's Supper and you don't feel anything, what you're doing is you're by faith trusting that one day your eyes are going to close and then they'll open again in the land of the living and you will enter a great banquet hall and it will be a massive place and there will be thousands and millions of people worshipping a king on a throne And there will be a feast, and a table will be set before you. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords will take the bread, and he'll break it, and he'll give it to you. And he'll take a cup, and he'll pour some out for you. And it will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we will raise our glass, because the Lord of lords has seen us face to face. And we know him as we have been truly known. So yeah, the Lord's Supper will be a sanctified letdown until the marriage supper of the Lamb. But until that time, do it until he comes. This world is about incompleteness. And every act we do is a shadow of what will have its substance in the end. And so, wrapping this up, we do this as God's people. We do this as citizens of the king, knowing that we're citizens now and that the kingdom is coming soon. Amen? Let us always do it until he comes. Let's close in a word of prayer.